Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey folks, we'll get started here in just a second. But did you know that the average American has 97 points they can add to their credit score and have no idea how to get them? Well, ScoreMaster is the new credit science that super boosts your credit score. Forget raising your credit score just a few points. The average ScoreMaster user raises their credit score 61 points in 20 days or less. 61 points. Trust me, that is incredible. Say your credit score was in the high 500s to mid 600s when you bought that new car. If you'd gone to ScoreMaster first and raised your credit score just the average 61 points our listeners get, you could have saved nine grand on your car loan. ScoreMaster puts you in control of your finances, not the bank. Enroll in minutes and see how many plus points ScoreMaster can add to your credit score. Visit scoremaster.com slash offer. Scoremaster.com slash offer. And now let the cartoons begin. Broadcasting from Resistance Headquarters. Relentlessly fighting back against the clown dictator and his regime of deplorables. Never give up, never surrender. This is the Bob Seska Show. Presented by BubbleGenius.com. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, Rocktober 7, 2020, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. My guest today is David S. Reynolds, distinguished professor at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and the author of more than a dozen books. But the book we'll be talking about today is his stupendous new volume titled Abe, Abraham Lincoln in His Times. And unlike other Lincoln books, Professor Reynolds approaches Lincoln in a way that's completely relevant to our divisive politics and continued racial divisions today. Link in the description under today's show at bobseska.com. Meanwhile, if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to our bonus content on our Patreon page, bobseskashow.com. Okay, let's talk Lincoln, Trump, and more with David Reynolds. Hello? Professor Reynolds, it's Bob Seska. How are you? Fine. How are you, Bob? I'm doing great. Really looking forward to talking with you today. Um, I, I'm actually an amateur Civil War historian. I, I, I'm by no means at your level or anything like that, but I, I spend a lot of time reading, and and uh, Gettysburg is nearby, so I'm constantly up at Gettysburg. And, and so consequently, I've read a lot about Lincoln's life and times. As you can imagine, there's uh, lots of volumes out there, but your book is... An absolute triumph. Um, so incredibly insightful. In fact, given the sheer number of Lincoln books out there, what led what led you to develop Abe? What led you to develop this particular book? Well, 
Well, what happened was that, you know, there have been more than 16,000 books written on Lincoln. <laughs> I had no and, idea it was yeah. that many, <laughs> but it makes yeah. sense, yeah. <laughs> and uh, a lot of them are, are really great. I love them. They're superb. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the biographies, uh, in general, really don't say much about his surrounding culture. Yeah. Or if they do, maybe they go into the politics a little bit and so forth. Um and you can read many, many uh, uh, books on Lincoln and not realize that he lived in the same ages. Oh, people like Melville and Walt Whitman, Edgar Allan Poe, Harry Beecher Stowe, and, and not not just them, but a whole, a whole bunch of other writers, and who were quite important to American culture and American history. Yeah. And since I've spent so long uh, thinking about that culture, I've written a total of sixteen books now. And uh, a lot, a lot of them on these other kind of other figures. I've, I thought, hey, there's this gap uh, in Lincoln uh, literature mm-hmm. uh, that. Uh, so I create what I call a cultural biography, yeah. in which I show how he was shaped by his contemporary culture, and how he in ter- turn kind of rechanneled it and. Uh, fed back into his culture. Yeah, yeah. And in a way, it feels like you're looking at the culture of Lincoln's times with an eye on the culture of today, or at least that's what it felt like to me as I read it. Even though I don't try to be too much what is called presentist, which is referring constantly to today uh, while I'm talking about the 19th century, Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right to say that um, I had today's issues, a lot of them, in mind uh, when I wrote the book. And one reason is that these issues are really inescapable because uh, Lincoln's time was so severely divided, and our time is is particularly severely divided. So it's interesting, therefore, to look at his response to uh, his divided period uh, as opposed to to people's response nowadays, and also some of the same issues of race, uh, and uh, even popular culture and sensationalism and so forth. So there were a lot of continuities. Yeah, So uh, and that was very exciting for me to think about. Yeah, you know, I want to talk about sensationalism here in just a second, but before we do that, one of the things that I've been grappling with is this notion that gets tossed around in social media that we're on the verge of another civil war. And I, I've kind of bristled at that suggestion only because the first one was such a bloodbath. I mean, results aside, it was unequivocally a bloodbath. What do you think of all the talk of this kind of conflict here in modern times, this notion of a second civil war impending? I just, I seriously doubt that it's going to come to that. But wh- where are you on that uh, particular topic? Yeah, I think that... Um Back then, uh, there were a couple of things. Um, when Lincoln was elected, 11 states actually left the Union and yeah. formed another another country, so to speak. Uh, Lincoln never believed that, but they called themselves the Confederate States of America with yeah. their own constitution, their own legislature, their own president, and so forth. You know, a whole different government. And I just don't see that, and that in turn then triggered the Civil War because you had the North versus the South. It was very geographically located. And today, uh, the geographic separation, now we do have red states and blue states. However, given that, we don't, uh, actually most states are some shade of purple. That is to say, I mean, 
much are you know <laughs> some are much more of a red purple and mm-hmm. other uh, are much more of a blue purple but usually like the urban centers and so forth tend to be more democratic and the rural and so forth tend to be a little more red state that kind of thing so it'd be very very hard to kind of line up geographically yeah. and secondly we do have the lesson of uh, the first civil war civil war that uh, 750,000 Americans died uh, killing each other, you know, killing each other in a horrible bloodbath, and I don't think anybody really wants that. So there can be talk of a civil war, but uh, I don't really see it happening. Uh, <laughs> I frankly don't. Yeah, do, do you see any possibility of secession? I mean, it, it seems like all of these things were settled 150 years ago, 155 years ago. It, it seems like it's absolutely foolish to be imagining uh, say, for example, California splitting off or Texas splitting off at this point. Uh, it just... Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, Lincoln made such a great argument against secession because, in a way, where where does it really stop? Yeah. Um, because he says if a state goes, then certain counties can break off and right. so forth. I mean, you would have total fragmentation. And secession just wouldn't... I know there's talk of it in California and Texas and so forth. I just don't think that it's going to happen. I really don't. And uh, we've kind of learned our lesson from the Civil War, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what can happen uh, with uh, secession and so forth. And I just don't think... I think that if that happened, uh, it might be like the crisis of 1832 when South Carolina... (laughs) threatened to leave uh, the Union. And Andrew Jackson, even though he was a pro-slavery, slave-holding person, uh, and South Carolina was pro-slavery, he just said, no, 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 you're not going to leave, you know. I mean, uh, (laughs) uh, you're not going to leave the Union, you know. Yeah, what is it about (laughs) South Carolina? It's always the problem child, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was really the the place where secession... um, Origin. I mean, the, the most fervent secessionism was at the time, and then it kind of built up and built up and enveloped the entire South. Uh, it's just just a place where you know there have been a lot of uh, very strongly pro-slavery people who made arguments and so forth, and kind of almost libertarian or or, or independent uh, yeah. kind of thinking down there. So yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, another uh, false assumption that kind of desperately tries to link the past to present times is this fallacy that Lincoln's politics were similar to modern Republican politics. But it's a lot more complicated than that, isn't it? Yeah, actually, back then, the Republicans, uh, the Lincoln Lincoln Republicans Mm. were considered the liberals, Mm -hmm. and in some cases, the radicals. Even... Lincoln, who you'd have to call really a moderate, yeah. um, was considered by his Democratic opponents a radical, almost uh, AOC type of, of his, or, Ber- or Bernie type of his wow. day. But yeah, and whereas the Democrats were the conservatives. So it's very, very fallacious um, and misleading for uh, Republicans now to say, to, to say, oh, Lincoln was Republican. That should always be qualified by the comment that the Republicans were the liberals, the progressives back then. Yeah. So if they want to identify, they should at least say that. <laughs> I don't know if they're going to, but, you know, yeah. Oh, my take has always been that uh, while Lincoln's politics were complicated, and s- certainly that's been documented, 
he certainly upheld the uh, concept of a strong central government. He passed the federal income tax, right? And while uh, his views on race kind of evolved throughout his public life, he landed on a strong civil rights platform plank. Is that all accurate to say? Absolutely. And uh, early on, he made, you know, some people cherry pick certain statements he made about Mm -hmm. African-Americans not serving on juries, not voting and so forth. But he was running a Senate race uh, in a state, Illinois, that had what Frederick Douglass called the worst black law in America, because Illinois at that time in the 1850s didn't even allow uh, uh, free African-Americans to enter the state. Uh, And if they didn't get out uh, within 10 days, they they had a heavy fine or could be put in jail. So that's the atmosphere Mm -hmm. that Lincoln was running against in Illinois. And uh, he progressively, at any rate, he certainly ended up on uh, a quite radical uh, viewpoint. And Frederick Douglass, who at first wondered whether or not he was radical enough, met with him a couple of times in the White House and found that he was the the least prejudiced person, white person that the Douglas had met, and hmm. Sojourner Truth, the the old the old um, feminist abolitionist, she visited him and she found the same thing as did the black nationalist um, Martin Delaney yeah. uh, toward the end of the war when when he visited uh, and they were all kind of stunned and, and uh, by that time he really had made the Civil War an anti-slavery war, absolutely. And he was the first president to call to call for the vote uh, for suffrage uh, for African Americans. Mm-hmm. And he saw through the passage of the 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery, and the 14th and 15th, which gives uh, civil rights to uh, African Americans, even though that promise, promise was uh, betrayed later during Jim Crow. Nevertheless, he uh, set the, the stage for civil rights, to be sure. You spent a lot of time in the book talking about Lincoln's grappling with the Fugitive Slave Act prior to becoming president, obviously. Um, that was 1850 when that was passed? Yeah, that was uh, 1850, right? Yeah, and, and so one of the things that he kind of grappled with with regard to the Fugitive Slave Act was Article 4, Section 2. And, and you mentioned that in the book, too. That's a, a fascinating section of the Constitution. And as we sit here uh, starting into the confirmation process of a strict constructionist Supreme Court nominee, how does something like Article 4, Section 2 get played out by these originalists who uh, really uh, you know, cling to the original text of the Constitution? Yeah, well, today, Article 4, Section 2, which is about the return of fugitives from labor Mm -hmm. uh, to their masters. Um, That was interpreted by pro-slavery people, the conservatives of Lincoln's day, as definitive proof uh, that the Constitution supported slavery. Now, the Constitution never mentions the word slavery, but in that clause and also in the three-fifth representation clause, mm-hmm. uh, there's, uh, those were concessions to Southerners at the Constitutional Convention. Uh, there's a lot of fight over them, but finally... But the word um, slavery is not used. They use persons. Mm-hmm. And so Lincoln interpreted the Constitution as being fundamentally anti-slavery, but the reason he struggled with that fugitive slave clause is that 
technically, it is there in the Constitution, and he always respected the Constitution. Uh, he hated um, the Fugitive Slave Law, but he didn't want to kind of leap over the Constitution. So what he does really is um, makes an increasingly persuasive case that the founders actually wanted slavery to disappear over time, ultimate extinction of slavery. And he mm. went back and took a head count of the people involved at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, and he found that the majority of them actually were anti-slavery. Under the force of circumstances, they had to, had to give that Article 4, Section 2, and, the, and then the Three-Fifths Representation Clause. But uh, ultimately, they, they foresaw the ultimate extinction of slavery. And in the Gettysburg Address, he said that um, America is founded on the principle that all men are created equal. Mm -hmm. We would say all people are created equal. So he really brings uh, the doctrine of human equality uh, into the very center. And he was uh, of, of American experience. He was criticized by conservative, conservatives as saying, oh, at Gettysburg, he recommended uh, the equality of black people with white people. Mm -hmm. that, that's the way conservatives uh, interpret it. And uh, in a way, that's true. I mean, he, he literally meant all people are created equal, and that's, that's the doctrine that we have in America. So um, I think that anyone who today who goes back to that article should realize that slavery has been abolished totally anyway. So. Mm -hmm. It's an anachronism to go back to uh, Article 4, Section 2 today, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, I, I, I certainly hope so. <laughs> I certainly <laughs> hope that that is absolutely the case. But, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. the other thing that I always think about when I see Fox News Channel or I see something from Breitbart.com, Lincoln had his own version of Fox News to contend with in the form of the fire eaters, right? I mean, you mentioned these uh, sensationalists in your book. Did Lincoln ever address all of the copious pro-Southern propaganda that he was facing? I mean, there were articles and leaflets and cartoons and other works that were all forecasted all kinds of horrible things if Lincoln won in 1860. What did he think of all that extremism in its various forms at the time? Well, uh, he wrote fragments. He generally didn't uh, answer the critics uh, in any kind of extensive way because um, he didn't want to get down into the mud. There was so much mud, and much of it was, was quite racist mm -hmm. and, and uh, repellent, repellent mud yeah. uh, that was thrown at him. And he felt, if he went on and on, <clears throat> on publicly about this, that uh, he could upset the ap apple cart. There were four, four or five states that were border states where they held slavery, but they still were loyal to, to the North. Yeah. And he, he didn't want to be too explicitly and extensively anti-copperhead uh, uh, and anti-fire eater because he said, if we lose Kentucky, we're going to lose everything. If, he, if one of these border states toppled into the Confederacy, he said, we're, we're just going to lose. We're yeah. going to lose the war. So he, that's, that's why he had to walk his tightrope, so to speak, a little bit. Oh, yeah. but, but he made it very, very clear that he was morally opposed to slavery. And he said, I hate slavery as much as any abolitionist, the most radical abolitionist. I hate slavery. So he made that very clear. 
but he didn't really get into the mudslinging. Yeah. He did, but in a way, this is where culture comes in, because he really recommended this Petroleum Nasby, who was a humorist who um, lampooned, almost like Saturday Night Live or something, mm-hmm. uh, lampooned the uh, uh, Copperhead, the racist uh, conservatives of his day, yeah. in a very, very, by pretending to be one of them, almost like Baldwin pretending to be Trump or something like that. And Lincoln got a big, uh, laugh out of this. And, and Nasby, someone said that Nasby, you know, contributed to the fall of slavery because he was so popular in his lampooning of these very uh, racist conservatives, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep. It was really, really interesting. And, and Lincoln memorized a lot of Nasby's uh, uh, sketches and recommended Nasby left and right. So, in a way, the, the war was being fought on a cultural level, and that's partly why I I call my book a cultural biography. Yeah. It recreates a lot of that lost culture. Yeah, one of the things that I always think about uh, when I think of Lincoln is the plate-spinning act that he had to deal with as as president, where there were a lot of different factions all that he all had to keep in, in perfect balance somehow. And I think one of the things that fascinates us most about Abraham Lincoln is how good a plate-spinner he was, right? Yeah, absolutely, because he was being severely attacked from both the left, the really radical Republicans, who uh, got very, very frustrated that he wasn't even more explicit about making it an anti-slavery war, and at the same time from the right, who was calling him uh, someone who wanted to, uh, oh, foster complete intermarriage between African Americans and white Americans and upset racial hierarchy in America or whatever. You know, they were making all these racist comments ridiculous comments and these criticisms kept going and then he had to balance the border states and at the same time conduct a war against the south that at times um wasn't going that well for the north no so yeah it was hard yeah hard and you write a lot uh, about Alexander Stevens in the book, who went on to be, uh, of course, the vice president of the Confederacy, and his biblical justification of slavery in particular. Are, are there any definitive parallels between that reasoning, the biblical reasoning behind justifying slavery, and, and say, the biblical justifications for laws against uh, same-sex marriage and other civil rights? I mean, they're all kind of cherry-picking the, the Bible to kind of figure out right. some moral justification right. for their immorality, right? Right. A lot of them go back to the Old Testament mosaic laws and so forth in mm. Leviticus. And in the Bible, there's the so-called curse of, of Ham and so forth who's kicked out. And um, so the race of Ham, which supposedly, not really, but supposedly becomes uh, the African-American, uh, is considered to be inferior and should be under the heel of white people and so forth. It's really a distortion, uh, gross distortion, but yep. still, um, and as you say, say cherry-picking. But And there are comments in the Bible about sodomy and so forth. Uh, I, you know, I mean, I, you can go through the Bible and find um, justification for so many kind of the, these moralistic and uh, really wrong-headed, uh, uh, wrong-headed or, or wrongly attributed to the Bible. Uh, points of view. Here's a kind of a role-playing exercise here. Let's say Lincoln was on the presidential ballot today instead of Joe Biden. And if Lincoln won the election, 
How do you think he'd handle cleaning up the Trump mess? I mean, I've, in particular, just to give you some of my background, I've called for a Trump Crimes Commission and a slate of reforms that we need to enact uh, surrounding Article 2 powers, a a rather harsh slate of actions against uh, Trumpism in the wake of all of this. Do you think Lincoln's words in the second inaugural, malice toward none, charity for all, etc., would apply to this? Do you think that he would pursue uh, some form of comeuppance against uh, some of the Trump crimes, uh, you know, in his first term? Well, Lincoln had been a lawyer for 23 years before he became president. So, mm-hmm. um, and he always tried to take a lawyerly view, a view that followed the Constitution. And anything that smacked of illegality or anything that really depart, departed from uh, the constitutional American system really appalled him. And, uh, you know, the question is, even in his own day, what would have happened if he lived through Reconstruction? Because what happened in Reconstruction is there was a temporary ascendancy of African-Americans in the South, but then there was a reaction, very very conservative reaction, and what was called redemption, and a reassertion of white supremacy. And if Lincoln had seen that, he really would have uh, taken whatever steps necessary to prevent that. And I think that pretty immediately he would, uh, if he were alive today, that he would try to restore the balance. He would try to um, uh, anything. For example, you know, for example, I mean, you could give so many examples, but he would try to close all the gaps against foreign interference, computer gaps, or whatever there are there against. He would make that a big thing. Mm-hmm. He would certainly be interested in in the environment. Uh, and in, in, in the green, whether or not it be the Green New Deal or something else, he'd be, uh, certainly do that. And any form of corruption. The, the um, administration before his, uh, the Buchanan administration was steeped in, in corruption. Michael Holt calls it perhaps the most corrupt administration in history. And, mm-hmm. and Lincoln comes along and uh, he does his best to try to, try to clean up, uh, use the government to clean up corruption. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he pretty much succeeded. He ran a very well-oiled machine by the end. At the beginning, there was some corruption because Simon Cameron, the Secretary of War, was sort of a sleazeball, but, but uh, Lincoln fired. Also, L- Lincoln would do something else. Um, Trump likes to surround himself with loyalists, yeah. and uh, Lincoln only surrounded himself with people that he thought were really super smart, but also, more than that, committed to a vision of progress toward justice. And as a matter of fact, several people around him were were not loyal to him whatsoever. And and, um, Salmon Chase, the Secretary of the Treasury, it was well known that he felt very superior uh, to Lincoln. And, And in fact, somebody said, are you sure you want to hire uh, Salmon Chase as Secretary of the Treasury? Are you crazy? He thinks he's God and, you, and you're nothing. He said, and Lincoln's response was, if you have more people like that, please please bring bring them to me. You know, Because Salmon Chase had been uh, the Attorney General for the so-called Attorney General, for mm-hmm. the fugitive slaves. He had been, been a real, a real you know, an, sincerely anti-slavery pioneer. Yeah. And even though he was a rival and everything, uh, Lincoln brought him on because, he, and the same as the Seward, the Secretary of State, 
uh, he said, oh, I'm the premier of the, the administration, and Lincoln, at the beginning, mm-hmm. uh, in a way, Lincoln doesn't know what he's doing and everything, but, but Lincoln, val- Seward had been so incredibly anti-slavery and, and uh, you know, pro, pro-justice for African Americans, uh, that he wanted to keep him on, and he did keep him on. And then he replaces Simon Cameron, who was um, this kind of sleazeball, yeah. with uh, Stanton, uh, who is, is also very anti-slavery. So th- the important thing for Lincoln is a commitment to human justice, mm-hmm. to, anti-corrupt, to anti-corruption. So he would definitely appoint a cabinet that was committed to the, the highest ideals, yeah. the highest ideals. And he would make appointments of, of judges. He would also rise above uh, appointing judges for, let's say, party partisanship. Uh, he did uh, appoint Salmon Chase as chief justice of the Supreme Court, um, but mainly because, I mean, Chase did have a record uh, of uh, anti-slavery and, and pro-African-American. Mm-hmm. Um, but even though he had tried to subvert Lincoln in the 1864 election in which Chase fantasized of becoming president and Lincoln finally fired him. He still appointed him uh, uh, attorney general after uh, he took office. He waited, by the way, unlike Trump, he very specifically waited until after the election Mm -hmm. to make the appointment because he said, I want to make as smooth a transition as possible to my successor. And he even wrote a note to his cabinet in August of 1864 and said, you know, I could lose this thing. And if I do, I want to make sure that we have a very smooth uh, uh, succession here to my successor. And when he won the election, he didn't, didn't really gloat about it. He just said, I'm very happy that we were able to c- conduct a fair election during a civil war. Mm-hmm. So his, his, main, his, his, his main thought, so Anytime Lincoln, uh, Trump compares himself to Lincoln, just say the opposite. Yeah. I'm sorry, but it happens to be true. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's exactly the opposite. You know, so there's absolutely no no comparison that, that can be made. Well, and oftentimes, in, uh, especially in pop culture, most recently in the uh, Steven Spielberg movie, uh, Lincoln's cabinet is portrayed as being almost openly antagonistic toward the president, where they're constantly kind of henpecking him over his ideas and plans. Was that really the case, or were well, they... Yeah, I mean, yeah. for example, yeah, for example, um, Stanton was very irascible, very uh, cantankerous, uh, kind of a nervous guy, although he was a very good performer as the Secretary of War, but a lot of them had personal animosities against each other, because mm-hmm. Lincoln, in choosing them, um, you know, as Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, uh, her uh, name is, uh, her title is Team of Rivals. Yeah. You know, some were former Democrats, some were former Whigs, and he brought them all together because they had a shared vision. But there were a lot of personality conflicts between them and between them and Lincoln. And at one point, uh, several of them tried to quit. And he said, no, 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 I don't, don't want to quit. But in a way... Uh, it all balanced out at the end. And as long as you had a strong person in the middle, uh, Lincoln himself, who, and in the movie, I think they do a good job of this. They have him slam his hand on the table. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> say, no, nope, no, nope. okay, because they're all bickering against each other and against him. He slams his hand. I thought that was a great moment in the oh, movie. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But yeah, and that's really, really the way he was. 
Okay, we'll get back to our conversation with Professor Reynolds here in just a second. But did you know that the average American has 97 points that they can add to their credit score and have no idea how to get them? Well, ScoreMaster is the new credit science that super boosts your credit score. Forget raising your score a few points. That's weak. The average ScoreMaster user raises their credit score 61 points in 20 days or less. 61 points. Trust me, I follow my credit score religiously, and 61 points is practically unheard of. And if you own a business, you know how essential great credit is. From getting a loan to funding projects to financing equipment, go to ScoreMaster first and see how super boosting your business credit score can save you a fortune. ScoreMaster puts you in control of your finances, not the banks. Enroll in minutes and see how many plus points ScoreMaster can add to your credit score. Visit scoremaster.com slash offer. That's scoremaster.com slash offer. Now that we've said goodbye to summer, it's time for things to get back into our everyday fall groove. Everything is flavored with pumpkin spice, and before you know it, the leaves are going to start changing color and falling to their deaths. In fact, they've already started. If you listen carefully, you can hear the screaming. With so much changing around us, it's increasingly difficult to find that extra time for you, the time you need to take care of yourself and to look your best. With Plexiderm, all you need is 10 minutes, and you can look 10 years younger. I'm talking about Photoshop in a can. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that gives your appearance the right kind of changes. Visibly reduce wrinkles, fine lines, and even under-eye bags in minutes. Plexiderm even works on laugh lines, number 11s, and crow's feet. Take up to 10 years off your appearance in less than 10 minutes, and the results are going to last for hours. You can try a six-application trial pack for just $14.95 with free shipping when you visit triplexiderm.com or call 1-800-685-1292 and say the code VOICES. This order also comes with free shipping and a 30-day money-back guarantee. Make those wrinkles, lines, and under-eye bags disappear with Plexiderm. Visit triplexiderm.com or call 1-800-685-1292 and say the code VOICES at checkout. Thank you. The Bob Seska Show. You know, as a Lincoln scholar, I'm sure you get the what-if questions all the time. So here's another one. Uh, what would be different about modern America, America right now today, had Lincoln survived the assassination? I mean, in other words, how would his second term fully survived have changed the trajectory of the nation? I would imagine it'd be pretty significant, both in terms of overall union, of course, the, the unity of the country, and then also in terms of, of race. How would that have uh, changed? If there's an alternate reality where Lincoln had lived, how would that have changed uh, America that we know today? Yeah, for sure. Well, um, no one knows for sure, but my point of view is the following. Once you get rid of slavery once you, through the 13th Amendment, and once you nationalize civil rights for at least African-American males uh, in the 15th Amendment. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, Lincoln would have shepherded the country in a direction so that it would not have led uh, toward um, several, many decades of Jim Crow. Um, because what happens is that after 1876 and the collapse of Reconstruction, uh, racism just becomes so terribly ugly with so many lynchings of African Americans and such legalized discrimination. I think he would have set the nation on a much healthier track, uh, track uh, so that civil rights, which in America actually didn't come until like the 1950s, late 1950s and, and 1960s, mm -hmm. Uh, beginning with Brown v. Board in uh, 1954, 
uh, would have come much sooner, and uh, there there would have been a much more progressive tenor uh, in America, and also a much more kind of equalizing and I think fair uh, tenor, so that maybe you wouldn't have even had things like, let's say, the Chinese Exclusion Act mm-hmm. uh, of the 1890s, where the the uh, you know the uh, certain Asian people were ex- excluded from the country, maybe, and maybe you wouldn't have. I don't think you would have had the Ku Klux Klan which comes up during Reconstruction and then uh, is resurrected in the 1920s. I really think you would have had a completely different kind of America. Do you kind of share that point of view? Oh, yeah, God, absolutely. I mean, in fact, even after the 13th Amendment was ratified, um, the pro-slavery forces managed to carve out all these loopholes in the system, the Jim Crow laws that um, led to what uh, Douglas Blackman calls uh, neo-slavery. African-Americans picked up on bogus charges and sentenced to lifetimes of hard labor. I mean, these are things that uh, probably would not have occurred had Lincoln survived. I I agree with you. You know, because he could be quite firm, even in conducting the war, there were so many people around him who said, well, maybe we should make peace, blah, blah, blah. He said, no, 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 we're going to you know, pursue this war until the end. And uh, no, no, he would have, uh, you know, there came, he was very easygoing in some respects, and he could tell stories and jokes, but he could slap his hand on, on the table and say, no, nope, I'm not going to allow that, and yeah. not if I'm president. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. It's yeah. Ama- it's just amazing to think of the what if that one moment in Ford's theater just yeah, I know. changed I know. everything. I know. So it's delectable to, to kind of imagine. Even you know, I always uh, read about uh, physics and so on. And I imagine the notion of a multiverse where in some yep. universe there's a version of the United States in which Lincoln lived, and all yep. of those events played out subsequent to him managing reconstruction through to its end rather than this kind of kind of scatter shot thing that ended with the Rutherford B. Hayes just pulling the plug. Uh, I, I can't even imagine how vastly yeah, different we'd be. Uh, very, very different uh, country and much earlier uh, in a progressive uh, direction. Ab- absolutely, you know, absolutely. Well, what are some of the things that he would have done in the context of an ongoing reconstruction effort that would have affected uh, history that we know uh, today? Um, you know, some of the, the policies that he had going in, he laid out in more poetic terms in his second inaugural. But um, in terms of specifics, what are some of the things that would have resonated with uh, modern politics now? Well, you can almost see what he would have done from what he did do mm-hmm. uh, during his administration. He uh, signed the Homestead Act, which um, gave almost for free quite large acreage to individuals who wanted to uh, start a new life. Um, there were, it was almost a handout of, of land in the Western territories. Later, later that became exploited uh, during the capitalist Gilded Age by uh, railroad companies and so forth. But for him, it was a chance for the disadvantaged to really, uh, you know, uh, start on their own. And he definitely would have supported the idea of 40 acres and a mule and so forth, which yeah. got snuffed out fairly quickly under Andrew Johnson. So he absolutely would have supported that. And any way of enhancing, increasing the economic advantage for poor people, including African Americans, yep. uh, uh, in the South, 
and in any way to protect their voting rights and also any way to improve their education. He only had one year of education, but still he he valued education so much, and he saw that that was the pathway. He was sort of a self-improving kind of guy, and mm-hmm. he, he could recite Shakespeare by the page because he, he just read a lot of poetry and stuff, but he, he would definitely support uh, the Freedmen's Bureau and want, want it to become even stronger and stronger and, and really, really help uh, disadvantage African Americans in the South and protect them legally. So we, he would have taken every step that he could because he did believe in a strong government, um, mm-hmm. in a very strong uh, centralized government, but a government that was morally, uh, you know, morally inclined, inclined yeah. to help uh, the poor and the disadvantaged. And you mentioned earlier the what was going on in the South immediately after the war, uh, you know, certainly under Andrew Johnson, but nevertheless kind of picking up where Lincoln left off, that there were African-Americans holding state office, uh, certainly federal office with, uh, you know, African-American senators, African-American members of Congress. It's an incredible thing to imagine that that actually did happen, but the backlash to it. Uh, just killed it off. It was suffocated before it even really got started, and it just took decades more for that to actually end up happening until 2008 when we had our first African-American president. I imagine someone like Barack Obama getting elected much earlier in our history had that trend continued. Am I wrong on that, or is that is that something oh, ab- that you... Absolutely, yeah. because what happens is that you're right. There was this sudden political upsurge among African-American politicians getting elected to office in southern states and so forth. There's a wonderful book called Capital Men. Hmm. Um, And anyway, it discusses this. But then the absolute reaction against that and the snuffing out of it. And also um, the critique of that early Reconstruction and African-Americans in government um, in uh, The Birth of a Nation, which is a film uh, oh, yeah. that came out in 1915. And uh, a lot of people, well, theater, uh, film historians say that it literally invented the, the modern movie. It was uh, a wonderful innovation. But mm-hmm. uh, it's, as, right, as, as historians uh, look back at that, it literally stamped the DNA, DNA of generations of Americans because... It it portrayed these uh, suddenly powerful African American politicians in Congress as whatever eating bananas, mm-hmm. kind of laughing and sort of acting in a very caricatured uh, and false falsified fashion. It really satirized uh, these. Uh, it went back to Reconstruction yeah. and satirized the, these African American politicians in a very very cruel way, and also it it valorized the KKK because at the end of that film, the KKK becomes the, the great heroes oh, yeah. who save imperiled, uh, imperiled uh, white people from um, African-Americans. So, you know, it's a horrible racist message. And yet it was by far the most popular film, you see, of the silent era. And uh, it uh, was one contributing factor to the resurrection of the KKK in the 10 years after that. And it kind of uh, intensifies that backlash against, and also even official historians of that era, uh, even respectable ones uh, at Columbia and so forth, uh, 
we're kind of rewriting. This isn't true about W.E.B. Du Bois, who uh, has a completely point, different point of view. But we're caricaturing what happened early in Reconstruction, saying, oh, no, 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 that was, that was quite bad, actually. The, mm-hmm. These were kind of conservative historians uh, at the time during the Jim Crow period. So they, they worsened the whole situation, too. So it really is not until much, much later. But I think a lot of this would, would have been forestalled, prevented, uh, if Lincoln had lived. Yeah, I really do. And one of the things that I always hope for in that alternate reality is that the lost cause mythology uh, would never have occurred, I think, if Lincoln had survived. And and that's one of the things I believe that the lost cause mythology is one of the biggest evils in our history in terms of civil rights because it continues to resonate today. The president of the United States today is still, whether he knows it or not, a disciple of the lost cause mythology. And uh, my God, you'd think by now it would have been entirely debunked and entirely thrown out, but it's still amazing to see uh, members of Congress, members of the United States Senate, the president himself talking in those terms. Is that a point of frustration for you? Yeah, it is, because the idea of make America great again Mm -hmm. Um, the idea is that there was once a time when, uh, you know, maybe back in the 50s or even the 40s or, you know, uh, of a kind of a more more lily-white America and everything, yeah. and everything was in its racial order and so forth. And it's kind of an updated version, really, mm-hmm. of the Lost Cause and the Old South and uh, the pre-Civil War South uh, and so forth. And uh, the Lost Cause... Uh, you know, another film that fed into it uh, that was uh, Gone with the Wind, yeah. the kind of romantic old, uh, you know, old South that, oh, it was destroyed, uh, you know, by the Yankees and yeah. all of that. So, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's a terrible thing. Yeah. There are cool- and Lincoln... Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. And Lincoln... Well, also the Confederate flag, which is like an extreme version of that, <laughs> but some people still have the Confederate flag hanging yep. out there and everything. Lincoln's first... Thing in the war, Civil War, was uh, about the Confederate flag because he saw it hanging uh, from a window across the river, Potomac River in Virginia, and he really hated uh, to look at the conf- he really detested the Confederate wow. flag. And his first uh, invasion through Elmer Ellsworth, who was a, a military leader, a young military mm-hmm. leader. Ellsworth went up immediately to the hotel from which the flag was hanging. He grabbed it, he ran down, and he was killed by a Confederate as he came down the stairs. And so the flag became all bloody, but uh, his body and the flag was later recovered, and Lincoln kept it in his house. Mary Todd Lincoln kept that bloody flag because they really hated it, and it became a symbol of what he was trying to fight against. Mm-hmm. against. And uh, Ellsworth, who had recovered the flag but died, became a huge martyr in, in the North. Oh, yeah. Well, one last question for you, uh, Professor Reynolds. Yeah. What's the one falsehood about Abraham Lincoln that drives you crazy whenever you hear it? Well, the one falsehood is that he was a racist. And um, mm-hmm. you can cherry-pick some of his early speeches when he was in Illinois, as I mentioned early, uh, earlier. Uh, and you can cherry-pick this and that about him, but in the long run, and yeah. if you look at his whole career, as I do in my book, he was really the opposite of a racist. And when he died, um, 
there was such sorrow among African Americans, and Martin Delaney, who was probably the most radical um, African American of, of his day, literally cried like a baby, you know, for for hours uh, when when Lincoln died, and he wanted to raise um, uh, to create a monument to Abe Lincoln, and the monument wouldn't be a picture of Lincoln at all; it would be an African American woman actually kneeling and crying uh, four million tears and each tear and and the uh, a monument would be paid for by a penny from each of the formerly enslaved four million um, African Americans so that's how much uh, he was uh, beloved uh, in his own day by, by by black people so it really makes me mad if, if some people cherry pick and call him a racist yeah you know whenever I hear that I respond to questions of, of Lincoln's alleged racism by saying you know what what it was really in fact was strategic posturing on behalf of Abraham Lincoln he, he was look as you said he was looking at the long view and those long-term goals is that accurate to say do you think it was along the lines of just strategic posturing it was just kind of he was kind of playing politics with it a little bit to reach a goal that was more noble. Yeah, he was uh, definitely, he definitely had the long term uh, in mind. And in the second inaugural address, this was actually when the war was winding down and peace was in sight. But he said, you know, if we have to carry on this war until every uh, lash, uh, whiplash inflicted on the back of the slave is repaid by a thrust of the sword, then we're going to carry it on for for how many every years? You know, he had the long term in mind. He really did. So you're absolutely right to point that out. The book is called Abe, Abraham Lincoln in His Times, available now. I highly, highly recommend it. It's a thick book. It's a thick volume, but it's an absolute page turner. Such incredible work. Link in the description at bobsuska.com. Thank you so much. Uh, for taking the time uh, with me today, Professor Reynolds, and good luck uh, with this outstanding book. Thank you very, very much, Bob. It's great to talk with you. Take care. Good luck. Yeah, right. Bye-bye. Bye. Now that you've said goodbye to summer, it's time for things to get back to our everyday autumn groove. Everything is flavored with pumpkin spice, of course, and before you know it, the leaves will start changing color. With so much changing around us, it's increasingly difficult to find that extra time just for you. The time you need to take care of yourself and to look your best. With Plexiderm, all you need is 10 minutes and you can look 10 years younger. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that gives your appearance the right kind of changes. Visibly reduces wrinkles, fine lines, and even under eye bags in minutes. Plexiderm even works on laugh lines too. Number 11s, whatever that is, and crow's feet. Take up to 10 years off your appearance in less than 10 minutes. And by the way, the results are going to last for hours, so you can take the family apple picking and look your best the whole damn time. Even better, Plexiderm doesn't involve any visits to a surgeon and costs less than a round of pumpkin spice lattes for you and your friends. You can try a six-application trial for just $14.95 with free shipping when you visit triplexiderm.com or call 1-800-685-1292 and say the code VOICES. This order also comes with free shipping and a 30-day money-back guarantee. Make those wrinkles, lines, and under-eye bags disappear with Plexiderm. Visit triplexiderm.com or call 800-685-1292 and use the code VOICES at checkout. Thank you. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home, yes, cool, or attending one live, no! 
You can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.